Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders! I'm Justin Burt, joined tonight by our wonderful producer, Clara Mao. Say hi, Clara! Hi, everyone! We are so lucky to have such a great team of producers here at the Cribsiders. We had an outstanding guest tonight, Dr. John Gaetanis, to discuss pediatric seizures and epilepsy. It was a phenomenal show. But before we tell you more about it, Chris, give us an intro. What do we do for this show? Well, let's see if I can remember this. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. Claire, you want to tell us a little bit more about our guest? Yeah, so today we were joined by um, our fantastic guest, Dr. John Gaitanis, who is a graduate of Brown Medical School and the former director of pediatric epilepsy at Hasbro Children's Hospital in Providence. He is currently the chief of pediatric neurology at Tufts Children's Hospital and a board member of the Epilepsy Foundation of New England. Dr. Gaitanis teaches us to always focus on the etiology of seizures at a basic science level, how to diagnose and manage simple and complicated seizures, and not to overlook non-medication approaches. So without further ado, let's get to it. Where's the pun, Chris? Got to seize the day. <laughs> That's what we decided on. We got we to seize the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Dr. John uh, Gaitanis. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Happy to be here. Uh, I appreciate it. And we're really informal. We're a bunch of informal people. Do you mind if for the show we call you John? Absolutely. That'd be That'd be great. Thanks so much for coming on the show. We are really excited about this episode, but before we dive into the content, would love to get to know you a little bit better and was hoping if you could just give us a little description of yourself. Can you tell the audience and our listeners about you? Absolutely. So a uh, 50-year-old child neurologist, went to Brown Med School, graduated in 96, now working at Tufts Medical Center. I'm a father of three. And I saw you married your med school sweetheart. Is that is that how you refer to your wife? I did. I did. Yeah. So we, uh, she does infectious disease now at the Providence VA. So my favorite question is, what is your favorite failure and how did you learn from it? So this one is something I don't know if I can answer in the way that we hear this in, say, like the tech world or in business. Uh, because in medicine, when I think of failure, and unfortunately, I think of bad patient outcomes and, and the person on the other side to that. So I can't describe it in, in such an easy way. Um, I could just say that there are many situations that I wish had turned out differently, and each one stays with me through everything I do in, in my work. Kind of along those lines, what is the best advice you've ever received, either as a learner or as a teacher? Well, as a medical student, I, I do remember a, a surgical attending who ended a conference by telling us all that we can get back to our pathetic, miserable lives. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how the conference ended. And it stuck with me for a while because I, I, I kept trying to psychoanalyze what was behind that statement. What, what happened in this guy's life? Where did things go wrong? How did it get so bad that, that that's how conference ended? And, and I, at that point, I made a decision with myself that I, I need to, whatever I do in my career, I need to not be in that situation where I look down on the medical students in that manner. That's good. It's, 
Wow. Nice That's that funny. <laughs> Do you have a book that you think every physician should read? There are so many, but one that I'll give you was recommended to me by an Annapolis graduate. And I asked this person, what's the best book you've ever read about military leadership? So she gave me the answer, Gates of Fire by, by Steve Pressfield. And it was about uh, the Spartan 300. And what I take from this book, so in the end, I mean, it's a long, long history to get there. But when they ask uh, the king how it is he chose the 300, it turns out he chose them not based on the character of those individuals, but based on the character of the families that they were to leave behind, because he knew that this was a suicide mission. Mm. And the reason I think of that in medicine is I, I think all the time about the families that we leave behind sometimes, that our patients have left behind, sadly, and, and the strength that they have, and, and seeing how their families have persevered, and sometimes made really beautiful, wonderful things come out of tragedy. I've, I've seen some incredible stories of patients that have really fought through adversity. Great. Well, we have a lot of content for the show, so I think we should we should dive into a case. And Clara, do you want to start us off and read our first case from Cashlot Children's Hospital? Sure. So the case starts out with Phoebe Riley. She is a four-month-old girl whose mother brings her into the pediatrician's office because she's had one day of fever with the highest temperature of 103 Fahrenheit and an episode of shaking in her arms and legs that lasted about one minute this morning. She has no history of previous seizures, and there are no sick contacts in the home. The first question that we have is, what are febrile seizures and, and what causes them? So febrile seizures are a condition that happen typically between about six months to five years of age, and they are seizures that occur in the setting of fever or febrile illness. So Phoebe, right away, she's four months. She's a bit younger than we'd, we'd see on average. So that brings our antennae up because it raises the question as to whether this is truly what she has. Every child with coming in with seizure in the setting of fever, we always have to question, is there another possible cause for the seizure or could it be febrile seizure? But we don't want to jump right to that conclusion of febrile seizure without thinking about all the different possibilities. So is this always a diagnosis of exclusion or are there times when you you're like this is slam dunk this is a fibro seizure i don't have to do much else on on this uh workup it is in a sense a diagnosis of exclusion because we, you never want to miss meningitis or a more serious cause however it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to do a lumbar puncture on every kid or do imaging on every single kid you have to at least consider the possibilities and then you can rule those in or out clinically without without doing you know lots of invasive studies and so what causes these febrile seizures? What, what causes a otherwise healthy kid to seize when they're hot, when they, when they have a fever? So this is something that I used to think of as a peds resident. I used to think of as a normal condition of childhood. But what we found in the last couple decades is that there are quite a number of genes that predispose kids to febrile seizures. There's no single genetic cause, but there are multiple different genetic contributors that can predispose children to this condition. So do you ask about family history, like whether a parent has had fibrosis seizures or it runs in the family? Is that important in this case? Yeah, it's one of the most important questions we ask. So parental history is something that I would consider reassuring. If the history is for febrile seizure, then that would make it much more likely that this is also febrile seizure. Are there other parts that, other things that you would see on exam or other concerning features of febrile seizures that would that would make another antenna go up and, and get you worried about Phoebe? 
The major thing is we want to make sure that her exam, once she's recovered from the seizure, we want to make sure she has a normal exam. If we see any sign of focality, any sign of asymmetry on exam, those would be concerning features. Or if she's globally delayed, if, if she has extreme hypotonia, maybe poor visual function, she's only four months old, but if you see any of those sorts of concerns, that, that would raise our intent for something like epilepsy. How do you explain to a resident, a medical student, the different type of seizures um, that can occur with a febrile seizure? The, this, this distinction of simple to complex, so there are three factors. One is duration, so under 15 minutes is simple. The second is the number of seizures in the 24-hour period. So to be a simple febrile seizure, it would uh, require one seizure. Complex would be multiple. And then the third is focality. A simple febrile seizure should be generalized. It should be under 15 minutes, and it should be a, a single event. And why is that distinction important? Does complex febrile seizures mean that you're more likely to have some type of epileptiform disorder? Is there some other likely process going on? Multiple complex features in combination do raise the risk of epilepsy, but um, there are other factors too we have to consider. The, most, the two most important would be family history of epilepsy as opposed to febrile seizure. If there's a family history of epilepsy or if the child has either developmental delays or clear abnormalities on examination. Those, those are really the primary features. And the complex is just kind of like a plus one that makes you more concerning for those? It, yeah, it's no individual feature there has clearly distinguished itself as, as a risk factor for epilepsy. The one, though, that stands out is duration, but the literature actually is not for 15 minutes for concern of subsequent epilepsy. It's really for over half an hour. So the, this, this duration of complex being 15 minutes came before much of the research showing concerns when the seizures go beyond half an hour. If a kid is presenting into the emergency department or to EMS, I would imagine that it's not typical for them to wait 15 minutes before just to see if they keep seizing, but would intervene if someone's there. Is that safe to say? Like you, wouldn't, you wouldn't intentionally withhold treatment to see if it's complex, correct? Ne never. No. So there is a, an, something called an operational definition of, we'll get to status epilepticus, but there's something called an operational definition of status epilepticus that was first proposed by Dan Lowenstein. Uh, and it was, it was a way of saying that we should treat seizures long before they cause any injury. So, so we have this large body of scientific evidence, mostly in animal studies, showing that uh, injury can occur when seizures continue beyond half an hour. And the idea is not to wait for half an hour or 45 minutes to treat it, but actually to treat it long before that interval. So five minutes is considered a standard time to initiate treatment. And I have another question is, I've had parents who have had one child who was diagnosed with a febrile seizure, then will be afraid that another child who might have a fever for some other reason, whether it's a URI or something, be concerned about their other child having a febrile seizure and will want to like try to prevent that from happening. And they'll ask me like, what, are there specific concerns in terms of like the height of the fever or the acceleration of the fever? I've heard different myths and people discuss this. Is there any merit to that sort of discussion? It's more word of mouth than it is in scientific work in terms of the rate of fever, the, the time course of the fever. Uh, so that is something that you hear a lot word of mouth. Most of the febrile seizures that occur, occur do occur early into the illness. Sometimes the child did not have a history of a fever at all, but presented initially with seizure. Then the fever was appreciated upon arrival to the emergency department. And I think that contributes to this idea that there was a rapid rise. But when you look at, in animal models at least, in terms of what are the factors that contribute to the seizure, 
fever alone is not the only factor. So there's interleukin response, like IL-1, for example, or IL-6. There, there are certain pro-seizurogenic uh, interleukins that are excitatory that probably play a role. And if, you, and if you block those in animal models, you can prevent the seizure. But on the other hand, there are some genetic predisposing factors, like, for example, GABA. There's some GABA mutations where the action of that of, of that GABA channel will, the, the confirmation of it will change depending on temperature. So, so that would be more directly related to temperature itself. So I think you have a little bit of both. You probably have some kids who are responding to cytokines, some kids are responding to fever, um, some kids respond to both. And so I don't, you know, in terms of rate of rise of the fever itself, I'm not sure how much of a consistent factor that really is. Let's say, you know, we have Phoebe in front of us, again, this four-month-old. Um, she stopped having this seizure. She's sitting up. She's fussy, but she's moving all extremities equal during exam. Her anterior fontanelle is flat. Her exam appears completely normal. If she's in the emergency department, what else is on the differential that you wouldn't want to miss? And what kind of workup would you do? Does she need any labs, imaging, lumbar puncture, EEG? Are there certain indications that we should know or be looking for? Yeah, the biggest concerns obviously are anything that could cause her immediate harm so the first and foremost we want to make sure she doesn't have meningitis or encephalitis but when you have a child who is 100 percent baseline appropriate alert feeding smiling that's pretty unlikely that they'll have meningitis one caveat from my peds training is we always focus pretty heavily on the absence of meningismus prior to 18 months a four-month-old for example is not going to reliably exhibit meningismus However, a four-month-old with meningitis is not going to be smiling, happy, feeding well. They're, they're going to look sick. So I have to make sure that this kid looks 100% back to baseline. If they don't, then I, I really have to consider an LP, especially in a four-month-old where, where I have a, a little bit more of a limited exam. The other things, too, we have to think about metabolic derangements. Hypoglycemia would be a big one, but it's a very similar discussion there. In a kid who had severe hypoglycemia, severe enough to cause a seizure, we don't expect that they're going to be up and happy and playing. So any kind of metabolic derangement, any kind of ingestion, those kinds of issues, we do expect the child to look encephalopathic, not to return to baseline appropriately. How much time would you expect to give them time to go back to baseline? I know with other seizures, you can have a post-ictal period. Do we have the same thing when we look at febrile seizures? I don't use a firm time cutoff, but I, I would say this, they do return a little bit more quickly than you do see on average for kids with epilepsy. However, there's no firm time cutoff, but I, I, I do feel it's important to keep checking on those kids. You want to make sure that they're making steady progress towards improving towards baseline. I'd like to see them really close to themselves within an hour, but I can't say that I can't say I would necessarily would pull out a, a spinal needle, you know, if it goes an hour and five minutes or something. I think yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with just seeing the continuous steady improvement. And how would you treat Phoebe? Is it important for us to start Tylenol? Should we send her home with Tylenol to prevent fever? Should we be putting her on seizure medicines? So the use of antipyretics has been looked at. It doesn't appear to prevent febrile seizure at all, but we... I often recommend it anyway just for a child's comfort and, and partly for the parent's comfort too. It's a little difficult to, to say there's nothing we could do to prevent this. So it is something that I'll, I'll uh, often recommend still, but I do advise parents that it, there's really no evidence that it helps prevent febrile seizure. Um, we don't send kids with febrile seizure. We don't like to put them on anti-seizure meds either. 
even if they've had multiple events. And the reason for that is the trials that we have, have looked at that in have used phenobarbital and Depakote, neither of which were particularly effective at preventing febrile seizure. And on top of that, the kids had a lot of side effects. Um, and also for febrile seizure, if the child is completely appropriate developmentally, normal exam, it's not necessary to do neuroimaging. It's not necessary to even do an EEG. So my, my next question would be, so with, so you're, you're sitting, I'm sitting there in the ED with mom. I'm trying to explain what's going on, what happened. She's obviously probably very upset and worried. How, what is the best way that, what, what's your script in talking to me on what exactly happened to the child? What does it mean for, do they have epilepsy? What's sort of the difference and what's the risk for like future seizures? How do you go about sort of doing that counseling with the parent? Because I did this in residency a few times where I said, yeah, you're, this just happens to kids all the time. Don't worry about it. That <laughs> usually not as well received. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's a little better when there's a family history because I could point to the parents and say, look, you know, you had, you had the same thing. You're healthy, doing great. You know, it's, so that gives them a little more of that long-term perspective and reassurance. Without the family history, even with the family history, though, the, the main issue is that it's absolutely frightening to witness your child have a seizure. And it, every parent who witnesses this fears their child was going to die from, from the event. And so it's not a trivial matter. And I always acknowledge the frightening nature of it. I always acknowledge just how worrisome the event was. And then I, I like to focus on what we can do to ensure safety. So I do present to them what we know in terms of safety and long-term follow-up in kids with febrile seizure. And it's, it's necessary to let parents know that the vast majority of kids who've had febrile seizure are going to do just fine. Risk of over, overall risk of epilepsy is quite low. On, on average, overall risk is, is about 2%, but that's, that's still quite low. For kids who are developmentally appropriate, normal exam, no history of epilepsy in the family, those, all those things would be very reassuring. And the, uh, if you look at long-term intellectual development, you know, cognitively, neuros neuropsychological testing, the kids are, are fine. There's no evidence of injury from the seizure itself. The only concerns we have are really when they're quite prolonged, when, when we start to get into seizures that are, again, more than half an hour then there is some risk. But even there, the brain is very, very resistant to, to injury. So, so I try to present what we know in terms of the data to the families, let them know that these seizures will not cause their child harm, and, that, and then give them a strategy of this is what we would do if it does occur again. And part of that is sometimes using a medication to break a seizure at home. Even though they're, this is getting off-label, they're not FDA-approved. There is no medicine FDA-approved specifically for febrile seizure, but we do have medications. We, we do have benzodiazepines that can be given parenterally that are, they're, they're FDA approved to prevent cluster or status epilepticus. And that's, we often do use that uh, as a backup measure just to, uh, just to make the parents feel a little more comfortable that there's something they can do. So do you typically send parents home with rectal diastat or? So I use, I'll, I'll use rectal diazepam in situations where the seizure was prolonged. So if it's a complex febrile seizure, you're getting into that 15 minute range. That's a situation where I would use it. I would say even beyond five minutes, because that's really where we would treat. And I would also use it in situations where we're now looking, if we're looking at like a second or third seizure, or if the child had a cluster of seizures on presentation. Those are all situations where I would use it. So more the complex febrile seizure kit. But not for a single febrile seizure, you wouldn't send them home I don't. That. I don't actually for a simple febrile Great. seizure, no, Great. no. And you said that 2% are at risk for epilepsy in the future. It's a small thing, but that is slightly higher than baseline. Is that right? So they are at slightly higher risk for a seizure disorder in the future. 
It is. So the the on average, like the general population, the risk of epilepsy is about 0.5 to 1%. And okay. so it is higher than that. And the risk of epilepsy is actually much higher when we talk about kids who either have focal neurological abnormalities, history of brain injury of any source, developmental abnormalities, you know, the family history of epilepsy, those th- all those things will raise the risk. Great. Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Patrick, an author of the new AAP clinical report on neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome. Join me to learn how you can use buprenorphine to treat withdrawal newborns, but also how the type of medication may be far less important than just keeping baby with mom and encourage breastfeeding. We'll also discuss different scoring mechanisms, but the most important is just being consistent. To learn more, tune in to the neonatal opioid withdrawal episode on the Cripsiders. So let's say, you know, Phoebe comes back to the emergency department two months later. This is one day following her six-month immunizations. She again developed a fever, this time up to 102. And in that setting, she was observed by her mom to have this clonic activity involving just her right arm and face. This lasted for about five minutes. And the seizure required the administration of lorazepam by EMS to break. So following the seizure, you notice she kind of has less spontaneous movement over the right side. So to start out with, can you explain the different types of seizures and then maybe what kind of seizure this patient is having? Sure. So we, we do separate seizures into really two main categories, generalized and partial. So partial meaning focal. When we talk about simple febrile seizures, they will typically present as a generalized convulsion and they shouldn't have focality. So whenever you see a focal seizure, it raises some question as to whether this is truly febrile seizure or whether this patient actually has epilepsy or has a structural brain abnormality that, that led to the seizure. So beyond the generalized and, fo- and partial or focal, we then have sub- subcategories beneath that. So for generalized, there, that would also include things like absence epilepsy, generalized clonic, generalized tonic, myoclonic, all those would fall under the generalized category. For focal, you can have things like psychic seizures, where you can have um, more of an altered awareness. You can have simple olfactory seizures, where you just have a foul odor. You can have things like that involve just clonic activity of, say, one arm or one extremity. You can have sensory seizures. So, So there's a whole host of different seizure types that you might see under that partial category as well. Of course, a six-month-old is not going to give you those those kind of symptoms. So in the six-month-old, we're we're usually looking at a a motor seizure. How common are are sensory seizures? Uh, That's not something I'm as familiar with. Do people have only olfactory seizures? Is that can that happen in isolation? They can. So the a lot of the time when you see an olfactory seizure, it's actually temporal lobe epilepsy, and the patient will report. Uh, a foul odor, but it's often reported as an aura preceding a larger seizure. When you get into their history, they'll often say that they sometimes get the aura without a seizure following. Mm. The aura that they're experiencing actually is itself a seizure. It's just that it hasn't spread to other regions of the brain. Wow. You mentioned clonic, tonic, and myoclonic. Can you talk about how we can distinguish if those are completely separate types? Sure. So tonic, in the tonic phase of seizure, when we say generalized like tonic-clonic, for example, the tonic phase is a stiffening of the extremity, usually extension of the arm, extension of the legs. They remain extended in the tonic phase. They remain extended like absolutely stiff. And some people will have just that alone. The clonic phase, on the other hand, is, is like a rhythmic relaxation of that tonic phase. 
So it's tonic, relaxes for just a brief second, tonic again, relaxes for a second, tonic again. It does that in a rhythmic fashion, and that's what we refer to as clonic. So clonic is really just this like rhythmic <clears throat> relaxation of the tonic phase. So when we say generalized tonic-clonic, it's really this tonic phase followed by a clonic phase. The generalized just means that right and left are equally uh, involved at the onset. Much easier, it's, that's actually much easier, easier to do visually. <laughs> it's hard sometimes to, hard to present by words, but that's, so, so not all seizures though are generally, like sometimes the term generalized tonic-clonic is mentioned by EMS, for example, or it gets passed down that way. And then when I get the history, it may turn out that it was a focal clonic seizure, hmm. or it might, have tur- it might turn out that it was like purely a tonic seizure based on the history. So I, I like to, in my history, I like to actually write exactly what the caregiver stated, just to give a picture of exactly what happened. So one thing I've come across in, 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 my, in my adventures is that um, a lot of uh, self-described generalized tonic clonics are actually have actually ended up being some pseudo seizures because that's what people in general lay, lay people thought that's what they in their mind what a seizure looks like is can you describe a little bit what what you've seen in terms of pseudo seizures and how that looks different yeah we you know we use the term psychogenic non-epileptic seizures now pnes is, is sort of the most accepted and i i actually don't know that the the language of that was so difficult or confusing for patients but that was something that we've evolved towards the appearance of uh, psychogenic non-epileptic seizures can vary quite a bit it depends a little bit on what the patient has witnessed or what the patient has had described to them but it's important to note that most patients who have psychogenic non-epileptic seizures do themselves have a history of epilepsy and, and so they've either, either experienced the aura or they have heard time after time, they've heard the description of the seizure and, and begin to develop these. Um, and this is not malingering, so it can't be, you know, I don't ever want to confuse that with malingering, but this is truly a, a subconscious reaction that is mimicking a seizure. Patient has no control over it. I remember learning a pearl that to differentiate a psychogenic uh, seizure from a epileptiform discharge from a, a, a active seizure, a prolactin lab could be ordered at the time of seizure. Is that real, not real, myth, fact? Yeah. So um, looking for an elevated prolactin as an indication that it was a true seizure is something I've, I had seen done years ago. I, I don't do it myself because I don't find it to be, I, I don't find it to be that reliable an indicator. Um, even observing a psychogenic non-epileptic seizure actually is quite difficult to accurately identify. So there is a real risk here of overtreating patients. I had uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I had a patient with psychogenic non-epileptic seizures who was intubated, treated very aggressively and intubated in the emergency room setting for psychogenic seizures. There's real risk from it. And even experienced caregivers have a hard time distinguishing. The gold standard is to really have an EG running. The, these patients do need to have a continuous EG, try to capture events, and really identify if they're psychogenic. But keep in mind, even if they are, it doesn't mean that they don't also have epilepsy. Sometimes we have to hedge our bets both ways. Are there other types of seizure mimics that are out there that we need to be aware of? Um, and how do we figure that out? Is there more history that we need to be gathering or what? Quite a few. So a lot of it depends on the age of the child, of course. So for example, in a six-month-old, we're not really considering, say, a psychogenic seizure in a six-month-old. So it, it all is very much age-dependent. So in, in a newborn, uh, one of the most common things is, is benign sleep myoclonus, is a very common issue in, say, a one-week-old. 
Um, and again, very experienced people may mistake that for seizure, and, and it's a completely benign finding. Um, and as you get to a six-month-old, sometimes like that four to six-month range, you might, one might confuse Sandifer syndrome or gastroesophageal reflux, which can cause stiffening as seizure. As you get older yet, you uh, begin to see things like fainting spells. There's a whole host of things, but like, you know, like say orthostatic syncope might be mistaken for seizure. Sometimes people have a convulsive syncope where they have a few convulsive or myoclonic jerks as they're fainting, and that's not seizure. It's really part of the faint. Breath holding spells in, say, an 18-month-old, that's a, that's a very common mimic as well. And actually, a breath holding spell can, it, in and of itself, trigger a seizure. So it gets a little complex. The same is true of faints. So both breath holding and fainting can actually trigger a true seizure, but it may be that the faint or the breath hold is what brought it out. So, so there, there's a whole host of uh, different considerations. That's why the history is so important. And the history, I would say, is at least 90% of what is necessary when identifying if something is truly a seizure. And how about infantile spasms? How does that play into this with the differentials? I know that's something that's very important to identify very early on. Yeah, so um, Phoebe in this case history is actually six months, and that's a key age for infantile spasms. Now, her history in this particular instance doesn't match spasms at all, but she's at that age. And that's a, so in kids who are around four to six months, when the time I worry about spasms is when I hear a story of a brief episode. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be, I mean, most classically, it's an extension of the arms with a flexion of the head, what we call the salam spasm. But it doesn't have to be that whole constellation. Sometimes it could be as simple as upward eye deviation. Um, it could be a brief head bob. And a spasm is typically about one to two seconds in duration, but a key factor is they cluster. So if you have a single isolated movement, I'm not as worried about spasm. But when I hear that these movements are clustering, particularly when they cluster going into or out of sleep, and, and then if the child actually cries a little towards the end of it, all those things are always worrisome to me, uh, that it's possibly a spasm. Most important thing here is to get a, to get a video of it. So because they cluster, if, if one happens, they're likely to have, say, five or six or ten later um, within that next few minutes. So if the, if the parent can actually grab their cell phone, get a video, uh, if I look at a video, that is sufficient to diagnose spasm. If it looks like a spasm, it's a spasm, regardless of the EG, regardless of any other workup. What causes infantile spasms? So um, spasms are really separated into cryptogenic, meaning that we don't know what the cause was, versus symptomatic. And the most common symptomatic cause is tuberous sclerosis, but it can be caused really from anything that causes brain injury or anything that causes a developmental abnormality of the brain. So in the case of tuberous sclerosis, they happen because of cortical tubers, which are highly epileptogenic. But many times it could be a child who had a history of hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. They might have had a history of neonatal stroke. Um, they might have had neonatal seizures for any number of causes or history of brain trauma. Um, so anything that causes brain injury can lead to spasms. But then there's this other half of kids who have cryptogenic infantile spasms without a known cause. Those kids actually have the best possible prognosis. So the kids in the cryptogenic category have potential to have a completely normal outcome and, and be seizure-free after treatment. And so it's a very important diagnosis to make because it's something we absolutely don't want to miss. A general pediatrician does not want to miss spasms uh, when it presents in the office. They're, often, they're most commonly misdiagnosed as having gastroesophageal reflux. And I always recommend to every pediatric resident to watch videos of spasms. And if in doubt, just ask for a video from the parents. And 
sometimes what I'll do too is I'll, I'll you know, Dr. YouTube is very helpful. Mm -hmm. I like Dr. Go I also like Dr. Google, mm -hmm. but Dr. YouTube is quite good. Actually, YouTube's owned by Google, so it's all the same. <laughs> but um, so I, I sometimes I'll show a video of infantile spasms to a parent. Not every parent comes to the office having shot a video. So I'll show them videos of it and I'll say, does it remind you of this? And, and many times they can look at a video of a classic spasm and mm. say, that's absolutely what my child was doing. And so that's, this is one of these situations where the video is, is actually much more important than the, than the verbal history. That's cool. That's a good pearl. I, um, we had one of these in clinic that we recently diagnosed and it was, um, very memorable, but I like the idea of playing the video for mom to see what it looks like. Um, I want to bring this back to the case a little bit because Phoebe's been waiting patiently. And so she's uh, now on her second seizure, which seems worrisome, but it was still a febrile seizure. So I'm not worried. Is that right? What's the, um, what makes a uh, uh, febrile seizure now concerning the fact that it's a second? And then what is the workup for a new onset seizure? Should we be ordering an EEG? Um, does it have to be while she's actively seizing? Like, is is it too late if she's now back to baseline? How do we kind of approach this second febrile seizure patient? So your first thought, I think, is correct. I mean, febrile seizures do commonly recur. And overall, of all kids who have febrile seizures, about a third will have recurrence of a febrile seizure. So that's not uncommon at all. What's a little different here, though, she presented now with a focal seizure and then more than that, that focal seizure had to be treated. It was, it was prolonged. So now we have a complex febrile seizure, complex for two separate reasons. That does raise her risk of epilepsy. And in particular, the focality raises now a whole host of other questions, whether she's actually having remote symptomatic seizures from some, does she have a brain malformation? Does she have a prior injury that we didn't know about? Um, I, I think at this stage, it would make sense to think about doing imaging because it was focal. And it would make sense to do an EG as well to look for her risk of epilepsy, to look for focal epileptic just discharges. And are those things you can find even if the patient is not actively seizing? You can. So on EEG, uh, you know, a routine EEG that we do in the office, half hour EEG is only about 50% sensitive, 50 to 60% sensitive. Not a great test. If that were a coronavirus test, yeah, we'd, it sucks. we'd be. Well, actually, it's about, it's about the same as any. Anyway, but so, yeah, so... Um, so it's not great. You know, we do improve that when we do a more prolonged DG. So we always have to go based on, you know, the history really, uh, our pretest probability remains critically important here. However, if you see an abnormality on EG, that's actually very telling. If it's normal, it doesn't give you full reassurance. But if you do see an abnormality, then you do have to counsel the family that there's, there's now a much higher risk that, that, that we're looking at epilepsy. Because kids with febrile seizures should not have enterectal abnormalities on EG. Now, in terms of imaging, what what type of imaging would you choose, and how would you, and what what are things that push you towards doing imaging? Because obviously, for these sort of little kids, you know, imaging is not a, an easy thing to make that decision with. When a baby has returned, like let's say Phoebe's fully returned to baseline, she's feeding great, she looks great, she doesn't look septic, doesn't show signs of meningitis. I I don't believe in that case that the imaging is, is critical to do, like, say, that day. Uh, I prefer not to do CT if we can avoid it, just because we do try to limit the total radiation exposure. Plus, MRI gives you such better quality as well. The, uh, so especially for something like epilepsy, when we're looking for something like a brain malformation, uh, CT just doesn't provide the resolution necessary for that. So MRI really is the way to go. 
And in a kid who has re- recovered and, and returned to baseline, I, I often prefer to schedule that as an outpatient for, for a very simple reason, that they have to be NPO before sedation. And it's so hard to keep a kid NPO in the hospital when you don't get an actual MRI time. Sometimes they wait around for hours and hours, and a six-month-old just can't do that. Is this an MRI with or without contrast, or both? Yeah, I don't. So the way we do it, I think the way most centers will do it, is when you're doing sedation, you like to have a quick read on that MRI to see if contrast is necessary. But if it's completely normal, you don't need to give it. Um, You have to keep in mind contrast does collect in the brain. There's evidence that some portion of that contrast will remain there. We don't know if that has any significance, but parents have to be counseled on that. Um, and so we try not to give it. If, it. if the brain's totally normal appearing, we don't need to give it. There's no reason. But if you find an abnormality, then it should be given um, to, see if, to see if there is breakdown of blood-brain barrier. And so at this point, would you start Phoebe on an anti-epileptic? And if so, how do you pick between all of the options? So for seizures in the setting of fever, we, we don't. You know, if, if you have multiple febrile seizures, we still don't treat that. Because, as I mentioned before, the studies that have looked at using things like phenobarbital or Depakote for febrile seizure never demonstrated much efficacy, and they led to a lot of side effects. In this case, though, Phoebe had two concerning features, the focality and the duration. So I am concerned that she might actually have epilepsy. So at this stage, I'm not going to recommend a daily anti-seizure med, but I am going to recommend that we explore the cause of her seizures further. Um, Should, let's change the case a little bit though. Let's just say that this is a child who's coming in with two unprovoked seizures. If, if a child has come in with two unprovoked seizures, the chance of having a third seizure at that stage is close to 80%. So a second seizure is unprovoked is typically where an anti-seizure medication would be picked. Um, a single seizure, if you look at just a single seizure in somebody who is neurologically healthy, a, a child who has no history of brain injury, no abnormality on, on, on their developmental progress or on their exam, um, the overall risk of having epilepsy in that situation is somewhere around one-third. So, you know, meaning that two-thirds won't. And, and you don't want to just put a kid on long-term anti-seizure meds if, if they have a greater risk of not having epilepsy because then we, we don't, we're putting them then on treatment that they don't need. So the second seizure, in, in cases of unprovoked seizures, the second seizure is when we would initiate treatment. So with that first unprovoked seizure, would you, how much of that diagnostic workup would you do? Would you still do the EEG or, or would it be based on any of the concerning features that you see on history and exam? Yeah. So if this is not a febrile seizure, let's say child comes in totally well, no fever, no sign of illness, purely has a seizure. That is a different situation too, because we have nothing in their history that would have provoked it. So it, then it is very reasonable to do the to do imaging, to do the EG, because we're, we're, what we're really trying to do is assess the risk of, of having a second. Now, if, if they do have clear abnormalities from those studies that indicate that, that the risk of a second seizure is quite high, we, we might then choose to start an anti-seizure medicine after just, after just a single seizure. If I'm in the ED and let's say a, a child comes in with their second unprovoked seizure, and I listen to this episode, so I feel very comfortable and know that this patient needs to be started on anti-seizure medicines, pediatric neurology, you guys are busy. I'm going to go ahead and pull the trigger and start a medication. Is that something that a PCP or ED uh, physician should generally do, or should we always refer to the neurologist and have them make the selection of treatment? 
I'm I'm okay with um actually I I, I never fault someone for trying. <laughs> so even if even if it's the wrong decision, I, I always love the effort. I think it's and and actually I would recommend any whether it be an emergency room physician, a pediatrician, I always recommend even if you're waiting for a child neurologist to come do the consult, why not at least think the problem through and and ask yourself like what should I choose? I think it's always a good mental exercise to do to you know just to try to better understand the treatment decision making. So this was something that I think was more more of a pressing issue when we had fewer medication choices. And the specific problem is that kids who have focal seizures, we often choose oxcarbazepine, carbamazepine. Many of the meds we choose are sodium channel blockers for focal seizures as a first line. Whereas kids who have generalized seizure types, um, where they have, whether it be absence, epilepsy, or generalized tonic-clonic, we don't choose sodium channel blockers because they can worsen generalized seizures. You know, traditionally, we would choose medications like valproate uh, would be a good example of, of one of the older meds that we would choose for generalized seizure. So kids who had generalized seizures, had you put them on something like carbamazepine, you would have made their seizures much worse. Levotrastam really changed that whole process because Levotrastam has really quickly become a first-line choice, and it works for both partial and generalized. You don't have to worry as much that you're going to worsen the child. So it actually allows a pediatrician or emergency room doc to pick a med that's a reasonable choice uh, without worrying so much that you're going to destabilize the child. So it's sort of like in psychiatry, I think of it kind of like sertraline. I, you know, for depression, I often just reach for sertraline because it's, it's a good, safe choice in kids. I guess you could say the same for fluoxetine, but I, I tend to prefer sertraline. But um, it's outside my field. I'm not the one who specializes in depression, but that's what I might reach for. A kid who comes in with meningitis, I might just call up ceftriaxone, even though I, even though, even though my antibiotic use has gotten more distant in my memory. It's just like I'm, I'm pretty, pretty unlikely to cause problems there. So, so there's certain meds that I think even, even if you, if it's outside your field, you can feel pretty confident that it'll have some benefit. So levetiracetam makes this whole decision making much easier. The ceftriaxone of anti-epileptics. That's right. That's right. Vitamin C. <laughs> <laughs> and if we're starting a patient on this, how long are they? On it. Is this going to be an indefinite medication? Or are they going to be regularly getting EEG checks? How um how do we counsel on this initiation of treatment? So for a patient with epilepsy, when when a patient's had say multiple se unprovoked seizures and we're treating, the routine is to treat for a span of about two years, um and and then to check again with EEG and slowly taper the medication. Now, the reason on the two years is really we're, we're, what we're doing is we're giving enough time for the brain to outgrow the epilepsy. There are some types of epilepsy, though, that are more age-dependent than they are uh, duration of the seizures-dependent. So, for example, benign Rolandic epilepsy, which is the most common type of childhood epilepsy, typically is outgrown in pre-adolescence, somewhere between about 10 to 13. Kids will outgrow it. So if they present at age 5, they're probably not going to be ready to taper at age 7. So there are some, that's the one caveat to that rule. But in general, two years is like a, is a standard duration for anti-seizure treatment before we taper. So what type of like follow-up would we expect this, this parent and patient to be having with neurology? Is this something that we're, that you're seeing like every week or every month initially, and then sort of spaced out to that sort of that two, two year goal or what, what does that look like? So at this stage, so for Phoebe now has had a second seizure. It was it was focal and it was more prolonged. So I, I'm going to arrange for an EEG for imaging, and then I'm going to want to see her back really shortly after, uh, because I want to 
I want to evaluate those studies and, and try to assess her risk of having epilepsy. But I am more, much more concerned at this stage because of the focality and because of the duration. And so say the, say the child's older and they do other things, whether they play sports or they swim or even, even older than that, say they're in the teenage years and they drive. What, what type of precautions are we, are we um, giving the, the patient and the parents to, to look out for even after this current episode? Like how long are they going to be barred from doing any of these types of activities? Yeah, the, the whole decision-making here for activities is so much easier when you're talking about a child before driving, right? That's, so most of what kids do, when, when you look at risk, the two riskiest um, things kids will do are ride their bikes and swim. Um, and I, I always emphasize wh- whether it's riding your bike or driving or swimming, all of those activities have inherent risk. The most important thing is not seizures. The most important thing is actually that they do those things in a safe manner. Um, and so, you know, always wearing a helmet. I, I, I use that as a time to just emphasize safety, that, that children never be left alone near a pool, that they never swim alone, that they always have a helmet. I always hammer on driving safety with adolescents, talk about cell phones, all that stuff. So I know it's a, like they might be here to see me for seizures, but I don't want to lose that opportunity to do the general counseling. Um, but for driving, that's, a, that's state by state. You'll, you'll find different regulations. Most states are six months seizure-free to drive. And you have to counsel patients that if they're on medications, if they've been seizure-free on a medication, if they suddenly miss their medication, or, or if there's something else that's happened, if they've been exceptionally sleep-deprived, for example, they shouldn't drive in that, in that context. And they have to, it's, it's a self-reporting system, so they really do have to be honest in, in letting us know if, if there potentially was a breakthrough. For younger kids, when we're talking about things like sports or bike riding or, you know, uh, things like skiing, um, it really depends on the type of seizures they have, the frequency of the seizures. I'm generally going to err on the side of doing everything possible, though, to find a way to get that kid active and involved in sports, involved in activities, because many times most childhood seizure types are outgrown but the the effects of taking away sports or the effects of of not letting that child socialize or go to sleepovers those effects can be much longer lasting than the seizures themselves or the epilepsy itself so i don't want that to be a, a source of a second like a secondary trauma that this child wasn't able to participate in those activities at a critical age all right so let's say phoebe you know she even though these were febrile seizures she was started on our oxcarbazepine following that last ed visit given the focality of the seizure so she returns two weeks later with a prolonged focal seizure that began with left-sided clonic activity of her face and her arm this seizure lasted for 40 minutes in duration and did not respond to rectal diazepam. And she required two doses of IV lorazepam in the ED to bring the seizure under control. She ended up being intubated for airway protection and is now heavily sedated and on a ventilator. So kind of putting this into perspective, you know, when when should we be worried about seizures? Like, are you worried about this patient? Yeah. Um- a simple answer is I'm, I'm always worried about anybody on a ventilator. Um, but that, that aside, this, there are a lot of things here that have really put a pause to, say, my prior thinking on this case. Because if you recall, the last time she presented with a focal seizure, it involved the right side. Now we suddenly have a focal seizure that involves the left. And more than that, this was, this was a prolonged seizure. This was 40 minutes in duration. It was so severe that she actually needed to be intubated and, and is now on a ventilator. So it's already caused 
pretty significant morbidity. And, you know, to say that this was life-threatening, I think, is a fair statement. The evidence is in the fact that she's been intubated. And so this is now a very worrisome situation. We can't afford to allow another seizure like that to occur. And this is actually one of the hardest things for any physician to do. But we, we then have to ask ourselves the question whether I directly caused this circumstance. And so if assuming it was me who treated her last time, it's a lot easier when it was like the other guy, and I could blame them. But let's say it's me, and I have to come to terms with this. I was the one who recommended oxcarbazepine. Could oxcarbazepine actually have provoked this worsening seizure? And, and so that's something I have to really consider. To take it a step further, oxcarbazepine is a sodium channel blocker. So now I kind of wonder, could this be a patient who has trouble with sodium channels? Maybe, maybe they have a, a tenuous sodium channel to begin with, and now I've blocked a sodium channel that doesn't work and, and simply worsened her seizures. That's a terrible way to diagnose a sodium channel disorder. Um, I don't recommend doing it through causing a worsening seizure, but I, I have to at least ask myself that question. This is, a, this is a tough follow-up case to the question of, yeah, primary care doctor should go ahead and try. You should <laughs> give it the old child's try. And well, this is, a real, this is a real life scenario. So child neurologists have made this same mistake, you know, time and time again. And as I say, but in, there was a time when we didn't have so many choices out there. So oxcarbazepine sure. or carbamazepine were really commonly chosen, and they do make sodium channel disorders much worse. And so this is a real consideration. The important thing, though, is to stop and ask yourself the question whether you caused harm. Because, I mean, it sounds like an obvious thing to do, but not everybody does that. And sometimes the result of this particular presentation is to raise the oxcarbazepine. Interesting. Well, so let's talk about it. So she is going through a prolonged seizure that did not respond to the rectal diazepam. It required, you know, treatment to the point of intubation. What is the what is the concept of status epilepticus? What's the the definition of status epilepticus? And what are your thoughts going in your head when you're thinking about treating and trying to break this status epilepticus? Yeah, so the most common definition you'll see in literature is 30 minutes, uh, a seizure 30 minutes or longer. There had been some older studies that looked at one hour as a duration. That you can imagine the studies to try to figure out at what point do seizures cause harm to the brain are quite difficult to do. There were some studies done on baboon models, many on rats, but the duration can vary a little bit depending on the animal model. But usually, for most of the studies, you have to be over about 40 minutes to see clear evidence of harm. Um, in humans, the really interesting approach was something called the FEBSTAT study. It was a study to look at febrile status epilepticus. It looked at imaging and it looked at neurodevelopmental follow-up. And the kids who um, this is a minority of kids who showed a change on MRI, but the kids who showed any kind of evidence of abnormality on MRI always had seizures over half an hour. Many of them were over an hour. And what they show initially, like a day later, is they show evidence of swelling of one temporal lobe. And then when you go back a year later and follow up on that, a smaller proportion of kids actually show sclerosis of, of the same temporal lobe. So about, a, about one in 10 kids showed evidence of initial swelling. And then of those kids, only about one in 10 actually showed evidence of sclerosis years later. And sorry, is the thought that the sclerosis was caused from the prolonged fevers or that the swelling was causing prolonged seizures? The belief is that the uh, seizure itself leads to the sclerosis. Um, and that's something that um, has also been borne out in animal models as well uh, of status epilepticus without fever. 
that, that you can cause injury, the, me, the mesial temporal lobe, particularly the hippocampus, is particularly vulnerable to that. And so if you let someone, if someone were having a very, very prolonged seizure and started having sclerosis or damage, what are the long-term complications of uncontrolled seizures? So one of the big concerns is something called mesial temporal sclerosis, which is a, for, it's a temporal lobe epilepsy that many of the patients who have MTS or mesial temporal sclerosis had a history of prolonged febrile seizure as a child. And the FEBSTAT study did demonstrate sort of a proof of concept that, that a really prolonged uh, episode of, of status epilepticus can, in fact, lead to sclerosis of the temporal lobe and possibly to epilepsy down the road. So a prolonged febrile seizure, it, that can lead to uh, sclerosis or brain damage that then causes a secondary form of seizure disorder, epilepsy. Is that correct? That's correct. And the epilepsy wouldn't happen for years to come. Wow. Now, are okay. there other other complications we can see from uncontrolled seizures, like like rhabdo or something like that? Like, are these things that we need to be worried about when we're taking care of these patients after they've been stabilized in the ED and then we're admitting them to our service? The most important thing really remains the etiology of the seizures. Um, the seizures themselves can lead to metabolic derangement, you know, lactic buildup, but the, the real issue is always, what's the etiology? We, we want to make sure there's not some acute symptomatic cause that itself has to be addressed. And we particularly want to make sure it's not a cause that will cause further harm if not addressed. Hypoglycemia being a great example. So when a patient's in the emergency department and is having these prolonged seizures, this patient got lorazepam times two or three times until they had to be intubated. Are there other algorithms or approaches to treating status epilepticus in the emergency department? The most common place to start are benzodiazepines. So very commonly, if there's IV access, lorazepam is going to be favored. Uh, keep in mind, though, if you don't have IV access, don't waste a ton of time trying to get it. You have other options. So you can use midazolam. You could use either an intranasal midazolam or you could use intramuscular midazolam. You could also use rectal diazepam. So, so we have a few other approaches. Um, unfortunately, a lot of kids get a, a intraosseous line. I hate to, I hate to use those in kids, Be, and and someone might have forgotten that we could use, you know, that we can actually give rectal diazepam or intranasal midazolam to break the seizure. So, benzos are always the first line. The most standard approach that you'll see would be if there is IV access would be lorazepam, 0.05 to 0.1 mg per kg given as often as like given times three if needed followed by phosphany which would be 20 per kilo and then as you get beyond that you'll sometimes see phenobarbital loaded uh, up to about 20 per kilo uh, you'll sometimes see levotracetam or valproate loaded because they all have IV forms um, but I would say once you've gotten past phosphany you really have to assess the airway assess if the patient needs intubation because a lot of times those kids are very acidotic uh, their co2 might be quite high and they're they are usually being given supplemental oxygen so their sats may not drop but their co2 may be dangerously high and so many times people uh, miss miss the fact that the patient is hypoventilating because the because the o2 the exogenous o2 we're giving is keeping the sats uh, elevated and after intubation, are you then monitoring with a continuous EEG to see if they're having subclinical seizures and continuing to load until the EEG is read as not active seizure? 
Correct. So if if we've gotten to the point where we've had to uh, put the patient into, say, a medically induced coma, intubate, then you don't have clinical exam anymore to go on. So you have to really worry that there could be subclinical seizures. The only thing I have to guide my, my treatment decisions will be the EG at that stage. And so I need, I absolutely do need an EG at that point to make sure that, that the patient's not in status um, and, and that we're adequately treating seizures. Once, once you get into that kind of phase, then you sometimes are looking at general anesthetics. You might be looking at penobarbital, midazolam drips, um, sometimes propofol as a bolus, something along those lines. And uh, we, we saw in, in many of those cases, like we'll keep uh, a general anesthetic on board for a period of several hours before tapering. Now, does your approach differ for, say, the, between like the young kids versus as you're getting to like your older adolescents to almost young adults? Is there, is there a change in that or is it the same approach? The approach is very similar, uh, you know, regardless of age. It's really just the neonate might be the only age where the approach differs. But um, apart, and, and you don't see status very much in a neonate anyhow, but for the most part, the, the general flow chart for status epileptics is very similar. And what are the causes of uh, active seizure, whether it's status or a seizure in a patient with a seizure disorder? Are there specific triggers, uh, whether it's uh, a sleep deprivation or meditation adherence? What are the big things that provoke a seizure in a patient with known epilepsy? So in, in patients with known epilepsy, the most common things will be any kind of febrile illness or fever, sleep deprivation, missing medications. Those three things are going to be the biggest and then you can have some, you know, very unique individual factors. So there are some patients who might have a very, very specific trigger to themselves. It's good to know what that history is. Like there might be visual triggers, flashing lights, things like that. But those are not necessarily shared by all patients. Do you ever try to ever provoke a seizure while they're getting an EEG? Do you try to make sure that they do their tests while they are sleep deprived or try to do anything else? So we do, with, with EEG, we routinely will ask for patients to be sleep-deprived or partially sleep-deprived, and we'd like to see them sleep on the study because the physiology is different awake versus sleep, and we're much more likely to see epileptic discharges during sleep. So it becomes a better study that way. And we do have them hyperventilate. We do a strobe light. So we're really doing everything we can to bring out any abnormality that might exist. So the strobe lights can induce a little bit of seizures, or they can put a little strain on that for seizures? For people who are sensitive to strobe lights, they most commonly have a generalized epilepsy. They most commonly have something like absence epilepsy or juvenile myoclonic epilepsy uh, in order to be strobe sensitive. And so there are it's it's a subset of patients with epilepsy who are who are sensitive to strobe lights. But for those who are sensitive, it will it'll be something that would bring it out and and help us diagnose epilepsy correctly. So we, um, we we're following our protagonist, uh, Phoebe, who's now two years of age, and she has continued to experience some generalized tonic-clonic and focal seizures that have been refractory to multiple medication trials. So this is a, a pretty challenging case. After one year of age, she also developed these new seizure types, including drop seizures and myoclonic seizures. Around the same time, she also began to display some developmental concerns. She's got poor balance, some low muscle tone, and speech delays. So maybe first, can we kind of touch on drop seizures and myoclonic seizures, but also kind of what you're thinking with this patient and what might be the next steps for uh, treatment since previous treatments haven't worked? Yeah, so Phoebe, you know, she's evolved in a way that's very concerning. She 
you know, she came in what looked like initially at four months looked like maybe it's a simple febrile seizure. Now, having already been to the pediatric ICU, intubated for seizures, now having multiple seizure types. And so really the first thing that has to be resolved is what's the etiology? What's, what's causing all this is something that really stands out. Um, and then the second thing, and, and we can walk and chew gum. We could, always, we could try to think of etiology and try to think of treatment. But the second thing is how are we going to treat this? Because she's having uh, multiple seizures despite having tried multiple different approaches. Um, the, the presence of things like drop seizures, myoclonic seizures add to this story a little bit because there are certain types of epilepsy where, where those are more common. For example, Lennox-Gastaut would be a syndrome where you would see myoclonic and drop seizures. In Phoebe's case, I'll go right to what the answer is in her case because, um, I've put, I've laid lots of clues here, but to go right to it, we talked a little bit about the sodium channel being a concern on the oxcarbazepine. And her story really fits with what we would call Dravet syndrome, which is a type of epilepsy that is caused from an SCN1A mutation. It's a mutation of a sodium channel gene, the sodium channel 1A gene. And kids who have Dravet syndrome very classically present with seizures in the setting of either fever or immunization. They present typically around four to six months. It's not uncommon to see them present after their, their four or six month immunizations, but it can also be a febrile illness. And then they will, will actually have, when they're younger, they'll have focal status epilepticus, which can confuse people because then they wonder if there's a structural lesion. And they might even start oxcarbazepine, which makes the condition worse. As time goes on, once they get to about one to two years of age, they begin to develop not just seizures in the setting of fever, but they begin to develop uh, unprovoked seizures. And so often they'll develop multiple seizure types. So they may have steering spells, like a absence seizure or atypical absence. They can have generalized tonoclonic seizures. They can have myoclonic, which is just a rapid jerk of the extremities. And they can have drop seizures, which simply means that they fall to the ground. And then coupled with that, they, they have a regression in their developmental milestones. They, their walking becomes more unstable. They develop ataxia. They begin to exhibit language delay. So there's a whole host of developmental concerns that ensue. And the most important thing here is in Dravet syndrome is that patients are, their seizures are very difficult to treat. So we go through multiple iterations of medications and their seizures continue. And very sadly, patients, this is a situation where patients can even, where, life, where the epilepsy itself can become life-threatening. And, and there's an entity called SUDEP, which is Sudden Unexplained Death in Epilepsy Patients. And patients with Dravet syndrome are particularly very sadly, but are particularly affected from, from dying of their seizures. And so that really raises the ante of finding treatments, finding some kind of cure for their epilepsy. I feel like I've had some mild experiences with patients that have syndromic conditions leading to pretty bad epilepsy. You mentioned Lennox Gestow. How are though, like how is Lennox Gestow and Dravet syndrome differentiated and the other genetic syndromes, is it mostly based on the, the type of seizure, the history, or is this all EEG patterns? How, how do you kind of uh, categorize these? Yeah, there are a couple, there are a couple things that distinguish them. Lennox-Gesto is something that commonly evolves from infantile spasms. So many kids with Lennox-Gesto will have had a history of infantile spasms and, and then later uh, develop uh, refractory epilepsy. Similar to Dravet in the sense that they have multiple seizure types. They can have drop seizures, myoclonic seizures. 
and they're very difficult to treat. So from that perspective, it could be similar. In Linux Gusto, they very characteristically have intellectual disability as well. Um, that you can see in Dreve to maybe a lesser degree. Uh, so they, they have overlap. Linux Gusto, though, is a syndrome, so there's not a single known cause for Linux Gusto. There, it's a heterogeneous condition when it comes to the actual causes of it. Some, some of those kids might have had brain injury, some have brain malformations, and some might have a genetic cause. Whereas in Dravet, the vast majority of those kids have a very specific sodium channel mutation. So the SCN1A mutation of Dravet is, very, very, is a very, very uh, focused-specific cause. And that, that's really the key distinction. And that's just based on a genetic testing when you have someone with recurrent treatment-resistant seizures. Correct. Yeah, the genet this is an example where the genetic test really does make a difference because when you recognize that sodium channel defect, you now know exactly what the condition is, you know how to treat it, more importantly, you know what not to use. And this is where it's going to, hopefully, the, the direction will go, but this is where it gets exciting is that we have now all these treatment avenues that we never envisioned just a few years ago. So Dravet is one of the conditions, if you look at the whole movement towards cannabis and epilepsy, Dravet was actually the condition that really led that charge. So Charlotte Fiji, who, who sadly passed earlier this year, was a patient who was very public about her response. She was a patient with Dravet syndrome, but she responded very well to cannabis, to, to a strain of cannabis with high cannabidiol. She was featured in Sanjay Gupta's special on CNN. I forget what year that came out, but that really led to this explosion of cannabis use for epilepsy and ultimately led to an FDA-approved product of, of purified cannabidiol. Now we have other treatments that are being specifically developed for Dravet. So this year we also had the approval of fenfluramine, which used to be used in, for, uh, for dieting. It was a diet control medication. It was found to actually be useful for epilepsy. Its mechanism is different than other anti-epileptics, and it was FDA-approved specifically for Dravet. But what gets really exciting is that we also have now two separate companies that are working on gene therapies so for Dravet. So they're not able to package the SCM1A gene directly into neurons because it's a very large gene. It's hard to transport it in. But one approach is to, to act on the promoter region of that gene so we can produce more of that sodium channel and, and then kind of rescue kids that way. Another way is to make sure that the protein itself is is actually being transcribed in high enough numbers that it can act on the cell in the right wow. in the right way, and so those are fascinating in the sense that they may not just treat the epilepsy, but they may actually treat the developmental consequences of the disorder, and so they might actually correct the developmental delays as well. And the reason it's so important to recognize it for Dravet, I mean Dravet may not be still a relatively rare cause of epilepsy, but it's a proof of concept. You know, if it works for Dravet, it may work for a hundred other conditions, the same methods. And so we may be on the verge of actually finding curative therapies for epilepsy, for previously refractory forms of epilepsy. Yeah. And I mean, I think which is even more exciting, maybe even find, finding cures for intellectual disability and, and developmental delays, which would just be, it's, it's like science fiction. So I, I think Phoebe's case really exemplifies the direction that child neurology is going where we're, we we used to be a subspecialty that nobody wanted to go into because we nothing seemed to work well that's changing very quickly and we, we might be looking at a specialty that is now dealing with a whole new complex series of, of treatment approaches some of which might include uh, genetic gene gene-based therapies 
what other modalities are, are we looking at in the future in terms of um, epilepsy? So we've talked a little bit about possibly cannabis. Are there surgeries, different types of surgeries or interventions? Uh, you know, it's ketogenic something, ketogenic diet, something that people are looking at. Like what, what else is on the horizon that we're looking at now? For, for non-medication approaches, the big ones have been ketogenic diet, which has been used widely since the 80s, but is quite old. I mean, it's 100 years old since, uh, since it was first really employed, um, but came into, really came into being in the 80s. And then um, epilepsy surgery, which has been around for quite some time. But the, the actual surgical techniques are evolving. So uh, resective surgery has really been the standard approach, but now we do have a few other options. We have a laser ablation model that's been used. Um, we also now have electrical stimulators that are being surgically implanted, both a deep brain stimulator as well as a cortical stimulator to treat epilepsy so that, so that you don't actually have to do resection. And so we're seeing, we're seeing an evolution in all of these different uh, categories, whether it be medical or surgical. We're, we're seeing uh, quite a bit of evolution in the treatment approaches. Often, it seems like with epilepsy, there are cognitive or behavioral issues. Can you touch on, is this a common comorbidity with epilepsy? And is it clear why? Is it because there's some underlying genetic component or? Yeah, there, it is really common, unfortunately, that uh, patients with epilepsy will also very commonly experience problems with either attention, it could be memory, intellectual disability. Again, a lot of it gets back to the underlying cause of the epilepsy. So some of, sometimes the underlying cause was something like brain injury. So if someone had a stroke, for example, a neonatal stroke or other form of brain injury, the brain injury itself may have some predictable intellectual or academic consequences. Sometimes it's something genetic like SCN1A, which has very characteristic features in terms of cognition, also things like ataxia are, are very common characteristic features of it. And that's related not directly to the epilepsy, but really to the genetic condition. And, and then some of the generalized epilepsies are very commonly associated with, with problems with attention, with mood dysregulation. But I, I don't want patients to mistakenly think that, that all of those things happen for all types of epilepsy, because they don't. Um, it's really certain types of epilepsy or certain etiologies of epilepsy have higher risk of neurodevelopmental consequences. Not all do. And, and for many kids, I know many child neurologists, for example, who themselves had epilepsy as kids. They went on to medical school. You know, They had been treated with seizure meds for many years, went on to medical school, and are now doing very successful. So um, not every form of epilepsy does have developmental consequences or intellectual concerns. But for those that do, it's important that the child neurologists anticipate it because that's going to be part of, part of what we have to treat, sometimes more important than the epilepsy itself. I just want to thank you so much for spending the time with us. I, I, I know um, it, it was, it's been a sort of a longer episode, but we really, really appreciate all the pearls that you've been able to give us today. And I think our listeners are really, really going to benefit from, from everything that we talked about. Before we go, do you have anything you want to plug, things that you want us, that you're, our, our listeners to check out? Um, well, I guess I could plug the Epilepsy Foundation. I work a lot with the Epilepsy Foundation in New England, but... It's important to acknowledge the work they do. They, they do a lot in terms of advocacy, in terms of research. And so every patient should look to the Epilepsy Foundation for some guidance, information, outreach. Uh, they sponsor camps for the kids. Uh, we have horseback riding, rock climbing, surfing, all kinds of programs. And so uh, that's been an invaluable resource. Surfing, that's awesome. <laughs> Thank you again so much. This was perfect. I mean, I think we kind of covered three topics. We did febrile seizures, seizures, status epilepticus, 
and um, uh, you know enough of uh, new treatments based on Dravet syndrome that this is going to be uh, a winner. So we cannot thank you enough for all your generosity and expertise. Uh, very much enjoyed having you on the show and, and appreciate your taking the time with us. Absolutely. My pleasure. This has been another episode of The Cripsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes at thecripsiders.com slash podcasts and sign up for our mailing list called Knowledge Food Formula Feeds. We are committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, review the show on Apple Podcasts, give us some stars or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Clara Mao. Thank you for joining us tonight. I've been Dr. Justin Lee Burke. I've been Clara Mao. And this has been Chris, the Chew Man Chew. Thank you. Good night. Bye. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.